Well, welcome to another book launch, The Journey of an Esthete podcast. And that was a little, um, well, it's the theme to the book launch that I wrote this year and, um, or last year rather. And I took a little bit of, you notice a little bit of liberty with it, which altered some things in the moment, spontaneously, improvisationally. And of course, that's in keeping with our theme today, because today the book is this magnum opus by Andrea Wolf, Magnificent Rebels, The First Romantics, and The Invention of the Self. So we have a lot to tackle today, actually, um, because I want to discuss a little bit, well, how I came to this particular book. And so I'm going to sit in my chair here and... ah. Uh, Hope, uh, hope everything is hope everything is clear and everything is uh, you can hear everything and uh, I, I you know I came to this book because I personally have been interested in this subject I would dare say close to I want to say thirty years. You know, if I'm, if I'm speaking very broadly, I would say 30 years, but more 20, 25, I, you know, I became interested in this subject because of Isaiah Berlin. Now, Isaiah Berlin was a scholar of romanticism, among many things he was a scholar of, political philosophy and the history of liberalism and the history of Judaism and Britain and just guy wrote about everything, philosophy, analytic philosophy. He wrote a, a, a he, he delivered some lectures at Mellon University in the 60s. Um, about romanticism and they were very influential lectures and I am actually before we get to Andrea Wolf's wonderful book I'm going to play a little piece of you can hear Isaiah Berlin speaking archival audio of him speaking about romanticism and I actually myself wrote an essay 20 years ago inspired by Isaiah Berlin and the title of this essay was we are all this romantics now remains unpublished. I've never posted it anywhere. I don't plan to, although some of this today's lunch is going to get into some of the themes in that, in that paper that I wrote. Um, it's a little strong case. All, well, yeah, I think so. We'll get to that. So anyhow, here's Isaiah Berlin. And Isaiah Berlin um, is coming at the subject of urbanicism from a certain point of view, like we all do. And his point of view was... He, he admires the romantics and he's impressed with their creative vision and the fact that they revolutionize society so much so that according to him, modern notions of liberal toleration itself and even equality, we have them largely to thank for those two very things we all, I hope we all agree with. But yet, as he points out, it also spawned fascism and various odd sort of far left totalitarianism. I mean, so Romanticism, if it's going to be at all a stable category of boundaries, we want to ask ourselves, well, how something that broad lead to such disparate things in life uh, be a real, a real um, category, real identity? But it is, and, and I'll get to, it, get to this now. So in his lecture, um, Berlin sees Romanticism as a doctrine where you say 
away with all structures, order, law. I want my freedom. To put it in a really vernacular, crude sort of folk way that we would say today, I want my freedom, you know, or I want freedom. Um, but I'm going to queue up Berlin here. This is really interesting. The heart of the entire process is invention, creation, making out of literally nothing or out of any materials that may be to hand. And the most central aspect of this view is, of course, that your universe is as you choose to make it, to some degree at any rate. That is the philosophy of Fichte. That is, to some extent, the philosophy of Schelling. That is the insight, indeed, in our own day, even of such psychologists as Freud, who maintain that the universe of people um, possessed by one set of will illusions or possessed by another set of fantasies, it will be different from those possessed by another. The second proposition is that there is no, and it really is, in some sense connected to the first, is that there is no structure of things. There is no pattern to which you must adapt yourself. There is only, if not the flow, the endless self-creativity of the universe. The universe must be conceived of not as a set of facts, not as a pattern of events, not as a collection of lumps in space, three-dimensional entities, bound together by certain unbreakable relations, as, for example, taught to us by, say, physics, chemistry, and other natural sciences, the universe is a process of perpetual forward self-thrusting, perpetual self-creation, which can either be conceived of as hostile to man, as, say, by Schopenhauer, or even to some extent by Nietzsche, which will overthrow all human efforts to check it, to organize it, to feel at home in it, to, to make oneself... Some kind that's of just a little taste of Berlin's... And again, I've, I've said this before... I'll say it again, I consider Isaiah Berlin one of the great orators of the 20th century. His, his elocution, his speech, the way he spins sentences, I mean, that's a, that's a, that, that, just that little paragraph is a masterpiece of, of invention in English prose, which is his second language after all. He's from Riga in the teens, you know, in Russia. And, and you know, he, he took to, as I've said before, he took to England and he was an Anglophile. And so it shows in, in the beautiful way he speaks and his love for English culture. But that gets us to something very interesting because the romantics that Andrea Wolf discuss are all deeply German. And it's interesting. And so, so I think part of uh, Berlin's uh, ambivalence is Berlin as a, both a secular philosopher and, and a Jew uh, in the early to mid 20th century is very worried of course, about this sort of maybe overtly mystical, overtly irrational sort of, you know, emotions at no, at all, you know, no matter what, you know, total freedom. He worries, you know, he's, of course, he's, you know, he's thinking about the events of the 20th century and the dangers of that. And so he's worried about that. And so I think there's a sense in which, although Berlin is a great chronicler of the Romantic movement, he has some blindness. And part of the blindness is I think his, um, let me choose my words carefully, his insensitivity a little bit to the history of Protestantism and Protestant Christianity, and in particular, pietism. Kant's parents, for example, were pietists, and many of the figures in uh, Wolf's book have, a, have, have Christian backgrounds, and it's, it's a different, it's interesting, I sort of feel like um, on this, this uh, podcast, Journey in the Street, I embrace contraries, I embrace opposites, so I'm interested in reading um, Jewish secular thinkers like Berlin. I'm also interested in reading just everyday historians, what happened when. I'm also interested in reading poets and and listening to music and all the rest of it. And I want to kind of bring it all together. And I'm going to try to do that now. 
So, Magnificent Rebels. Um, the period of time she's discussing is actually the late 18th century. So it's 1780, roughly through very early 19th century, 1820, 1830. That's her chunk of time. Now that chunk of time is very special and it's indeed very, very different than the late 19th century, certainly than the Victorians or the Edwardians that would come much, much later and very different than the 20th century, of course. And so that's a special time. And so she has this, in this intro this book, Dramatis Personae, Look at all these names. So there was a town called Jena in Germany in this time. And all of these thinkers, translators, poets, novelists, writers, theologians, clergy, philosophers, all these kinds of folks, men and women. In fact, one of the major figures in this book is a woman who, I mean, we'll get to Caroline in a second, um, totally revolutionary, just beyond anybody else. It's certainly of the time she married several times she she had she had an open uh, marriage with her with with her husband and and uh, um basically brought shakespeare to the germans really which is incredible you know i mean that's all it's a whole i don't there's so much to talk about i can't get to it all of course in this one in this one um podcast podcast episode but you know uh i just want to uh um discuss the people we're talking about there are people like fichte the philosopher and people like Schelling and Schiller, it's easy to mix those two up sometimes. And of course, the most famous people, Hegel, Kant, well, not so much Kant, Kant's earlier, but yes, Goethe and Hegel, and a very important natural scientist that um, Andre Wolf has already, who Andre Wolf has already written about, uh, named Humboldt, who some think was the founder of modern natural science altogether. And Darwin said, without Humbert, Humboldt, I couldn't have done what I did. And, you know, he's a figure in this. And these, all these folks came together in Yenna. And Yenna, think about it this way. Yenna is like Paris in the 20s, 1920s. Yenna is like Berkeley in the late 60s, Berkeley, California. Yenna is like Hollywood in the 1970s. Yenna is like, I don't know, um, it's, it's actually um, a very special magical time where all of these figures in Germany came together and tried to create a new culture, a new philosophy, indeed in some instances a new religion. Now, my relationship to this goes far beyond Isaiah Berlin. I took a class at Harvard called European Intellectual History, and this was would have been 1993, Something like that. I was I was working on uh, uh, my symphony, and I was able to uh, do as an elective. Um, somebody somebody came into came to me and said, you know, Mitch, you really got to check this guy out, Donald Fleming, who is a, a very uh, ingenious scholar, and he teaches all this stuff. And you would really like Donald Fleming. I took a class in European intellectual history, and wouldn't you know it, um, he was talking about Schleiermacher. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Schleiermacher was a major theologian in the 19th century and one of the Yenna set. And he wrote a, a book called Life. Well, he wrote many books. One of his books is Life of Jesus. Now, I don't want to get confused because there were two very famous life, lives of Jesus's. Jesus was written by two. There's, um, I think his name is David. Uh, I forget. Anyhow, he was one of the major uh, figures, uh, Schleiermacher, who was trying to sort of 
um, portray to the world, uh, you might say, a very uh, a more modern, contemporary, progressive Christ. And and um, so I said to Donald Flood, I said, you know, I should read this book. And I ended up writing a paper on not only on Schleiermacher, but also on George Eliot, the novelist, because Marianne Evans, because guess who was really guess who translated Schleiermacher, George Eliot. She did that in between writing Middlemarch and Miller on the Floss. And so that's interesting. I would love to do a whole episode just on George Eliot. She's a deep thinker. And that's a whole, again, I want to stay on topic. As, as much. Well, at Journey of State, you know, we're going to talk about a lot of things. So things will come up. So I just want to um, cut into a portion of the book where Andre Wolf. Now, there's a lot of dramatic. There are a lot of dramatic scenes in this book. And to give you a, t a taste of of um, how she dramatizes the personalities. Hold on, she disappeared. We're over here. This is her description of Fichte, who was a big philosopher, a guru, almost like the self-help guru slash um, popular public intellectual philosopher of Germany in this in this period of time. And this is her description of Fichte. I love so Andre Wolf. I give you enormous thanks for um, writing about abstract ideas in a relatable way that can communicate. Well, you'll see, you'll see what she does. There was nothing gentle about Fichte. He thundered, insulted, and showed, paying no attention to subtleties or refinement. He stopped rather than walked, every step an affirmation of his very existence. He ate his snuff tobacco rather than inhaling it. At parties, he would suddenly jump up in the middle of a conversation and leave with the words, I haven't written my Louis D for the day. Uh, I need to write a page or two, good night. In his simple and often dirty clothes, filthy and disgusting in the words of one acquaintance, he might have looked graceless next to the other professors who dressed in colorful silk waistcoats and spotless white shirts, but the students didn't care. They were in awe of, of this combative, combative professor who had climbed down the lo from the lofty ivory tower of philosophy and seemed to be, quote, rooted firmly to the ground, as to earth. By the time he walked into Yenna, Fichte no longer believed in Kant's thing in itself. Now, this is an important development. So Fichte had studied Kant and was influenced by Kant, but he put his own spin on it. And his own spin on it had to do with something called ick. I-C-H. Is it itch? Ick? I don't know. It gets, look, this is, this stuff's important, but let's get to this. So has to do with the external world. And according to Fichte, the non-ick was everything which is different from and opposed to the ick. And so it's this kind of abstract notion. Now, um, let, me, let me bring this down to earth. What what excited these students about Fichte is that he's saying your internal stuff, your emotions, your feelings, your dreams, your hopes, ideals, not only are the not only are these real, but they're but they're maybe the most important thing. And in the context of 1780, 1790, 1810, 20, that was revolutionary. It really was. And here's a quote from Fichte. He says, gentlemen. Eventually there'll be women, we'll get to that. The feminist Caroline, we'll talk about her in a few minutes. Gentlemen, go into yourselves. Fichte shouted to students. We're not here to talk of anything external. Does this, does this sound familiar? Reject the external. 
reject the worldly. Doesn't this remind you of some of the sort of the more um, fringe doctrines of the 80s, 70s, 80s, and 90s of, of the last century? Interesting. Asceticism. We're not here to talk of anything external, but rather about the internal self. He would then watch the young men shuffling about in their seats, some gazing intently on the floor, others closing their eyes in concentration as they pursued their icks. Gentlemen, think about the wall. Now, what he would do is he had this weird sort of therapy experiment, although it wasn't therapy then, I'm using anachronism, that's a, that's a, that's a term from many centuries later. But it was sort of like that, he would have them stare at the wall and meditate and he had this exercise, a very strange thing to do, a strange thing to do in a university. <laughs> so in, in, in Germany, so this is, this is, I don't know, it's fascinating. But that gives you a sense of Andrea Wolf's uh, um, biographical skill in, in bringing these people to life. But also here's what she does that's to me even more important than that. And that she actually makes clear um, Concepts and categories. So, um, the word romantic, here we go. She lays it out very clearly. I think better than Isaiah Berlin, actually, because I think Berlin, again, I love Berlin, but Berlin gets too caught up in Berlin. Berlin, I think, I think somewhat mischaracterizes romanticism as a kind of lawlessness or indifference to structure. He says, there is no structure. I don't know about that. I actually think the romantics wanted to replace the old structures with the, they wouldn't have called it this, a new kind of structure, which I think depend on the dignity of the individual. Now that is still a structure. It may not be the church, it may not be the monarchy, but nevertheless, there's something to be said for that, I think. Anyhow, this is, uh, this is uh, from her chapter, The Dawn of Romanticism. She writes, the term romantic has metamorph metamorphosed through several stages since the mid 17th century. There is the original meaning of like a novel. That's what it originally meant. So referred to a genre of literature actually. And our modern understanding that associates the word with love, romance, but for the friends in Vienna, it was something much more ambitious. They wanted to romanticize the entire world. And this meant perceiving it as an interconnected whole. See, so the romantics already anticipate the ecology movement and modern environmentalism way hundreds of years uh, ahead of their time. The world is holistic. So interesting. They were talking about the bond between art and life, between the individual and society, between humankind and nature. Just as two elements could create a new chemical compound, so romantic poetry could weld different disciplines and subjects into something distinctive and new. Though the meaning of the term romantic may have been confusing, admittedly, it was the unwieldiness of the concept that the group liked. So they actually liked the fact that you couldn't define it or that people might disagree about it. So it was, it's very, again, this is very, um, um, See, I'm trying to find the word. So it's, it's actually kind of a very, um, the feelings come first. You know, it's a little bit like, you know, don't pin me down. Or, you know, there's that Wordsworth poem to, to dissect this to murder, right? So it's that, a little bit of that, that, that um, spirit. 
At the center of everything was poetry, but not poetry as we understand it today. The friends turned back to the original ancient Greek term poetka, creative or productive. For them, romantic poetry could be called anything, a poem, of course, but also a novel, a painting, a building, a piece of music, or a scientific experiment. So, the spirit of our podcast clearly is in part romantic, right? That's 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 why I like this book. That's why. So, I want to reflect now on some of the some of the biographical elements. Now, there's um, I've mentioned this this um, early proto-feminist uh, Caroline Bomer Schlegel Schelling who lived from 1763 to 1809. And she like, was like a muse to this group, to this Yenisep. And she's really, really interesting. Like, I don't even think I can do justice really to her. I mean, again, you should get this book because, you know. But one of the many things she did is she, she, you know, defined a vision of being a woman that was really, really, um, I think, ahead of her time and has a lot of um, resonance with the early 20th century uh, in the English speaking world, you know? And of course I mentioned Shakespeare. She brought Shakespeare, she, um, there's a, I'm trying to find the passage where she said Shakespeare's the key to everything. And she really believed in the genius and importance of Shakespeare, not just as like entertainment, but it's like kind of the way we view Shakespeare now, I might add. And it's interesting. Um, I think she translated um, like, many of his plays. And at that time, a lot of people in Germany in general had never even seen Shakespeare or read Shakespeare. And so that was very important. Um, she married twice. She first married Schlegel and then Schelling and there's a whole, so she had two husbands. And then, you know, the book closes with the French invasion of Germany which some of these folks actually supported, interestingly enough, their countries invaded and you're for the invaders. Well, France was seen as the symbol of modernity and progressivism and liberalism and democracy. So that's how, again, it, it's interesting. So this is a huge saga of the early 19th century and it's well-written and it's relatable. And hats off to Andrea Wolf for writing something so important um, and as you can see, something, these ideas uh, that she discusses are so resonant and similar to what a lot of folks believe and think today. I think that's interesting. And so for those reasons alone, I think uh, this is a worth, re worthy read. Um, I think I'm going to um, pause there and uh, talk about some upcoming shows. We have an episode with a comedian and illustrator, Teresa Roberts, next month. Todd Berliner, the film scholar, is, is on now. Um, I'm going to be talking very soon with Andre Bajowski, the filmmaker. And so those are some upcoming events. I hope you've enjoyed my, um, my admittedly a little busy, dense uh, discussion of Andrea Wolf's Magnificent Rebels. And support good authors and get this book. All right. Thank you. Have a good week, rest of the week.